cliffcentral.com. All right, welcome to cliffcentral.com on this Thursday morning. We are about to launch into the burning platform, which is brought to you by Nando's. Uh, it's already your one-stop shop to pick up on current affairs and to talk through some of the issues that everybody is talking about, that everybody's interested, and hopefully we will touch on the ones that you care about most this morning. If you've got any suggestions, if there's anything that you want us to cover, you're allowed to, uh, you're allowed, of course, you're allowed. You know, I need to make, uh, because people need permission these days for everything. You need permission to uh, go to the shops. You need permission to wear certain footwear. So today I'm going to give you permission to direct the conversation in any way you see fit. You can do that by um, <laughs> sending us your questions or your comments or anything you want to throw into the conversation. You can do it by um Contact us on 0797482090. That's our WhatsApp line, 0797482090. You can join us on the webinar jam link or on YouTube um, by clicking on those links from cliffcentral.com. You can subscribe to our YouTube and you'll be able to give us uh, just about any uh, tip you'd like uh, about what you need, you think needs covering in the burning platform. So this morning it is me and Pumi and we're going to be joined in a moment or two by Daniel Silk, who is uh, one of South Africa's leading political and economic analysts and a passionate keynote speaker. He blends the economic and political trends in an accessible and insightful way. We've had him on before, and I'm very excited to have him on today again. He's a director of the Political Futures Consultancy, which is based in Cape Town and serves as the host of major global blue-chip companies with outstanding keynotes, webinars, and workshops aimed at helping people understand what is happening in South Africa. So Daniel will join us in just a moment. Uh, Pumi, are you ready for another week? Yeah, get those, get get going. We, we, we've got, uh, we, we have so many things to talk about this morning. So while we're waiting for Daniel to join us, have you been watching your, your Zondo Commission like you always do? Unfortunately, and this has been quite a week, hey, unfortunately, I have had to, like I was telling you earlier, that I'm moving offices, right? Mm -hmm. So I have spent huge chunks of my day signing forms for Telcom, signing forms for, signing forms, huge chunks of my day, which have taken away from my, like, Zondo Commission watching. I'm my sorry. days of Zondo. You, if you I'm aren't so watching, Pums, if you aren't, missed... if you aren't watching the Zondo Commission, how the hell am I going to get my information on it? Dude, and, and who did I miss? I missed Matsela Koko and Brian. Brian Molefe. Molefe. And been, Brian Molefe. It's been a busy week. Well, let's welcome Oops. Daniel. Daniel, it's a great pleasure to see you. I was uh, just introducing you by your excellent CV, and we, it's not as if you're a stranger to the show anyway, but um, a lot of people very excited to have you on. So there's, there's stuff to talk about this morning, um, and, and I just spoke to Pumi about the Zondo Commission and what was happening there, and she, even though Pumi is a diehard fan of the State Capture Commission, and she's my, uh, she's my only eyes and ears on the commission, she said that this week she didn't have a chance to do it. Uh, have you been watching the commission? Hi, Gareth, and hi for me. Uh, yes, uh, good to be with you, by the way. Uh, yes, I have been watching the commission on and off. It's a full-time job to watch the commission in South Africa, so uh, you have to slot it in among other activities. But it's been, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a really necessary exercise for the country. And uh, I hope that, uh, you know, the financial aspects don't creep into curtailing what is a critically important process for us. 
So, listen, I did. I saw a little bit of, of Coco lying to the commission about precisely who owned a certain email address and and how certain members of the board <laughs> were able to access this, this information through this email address. Uh, he was denying it, but they, they suspected it may have been uh, Salim Essa who was in charge of that. Essa, of course, being a henchman of the Guptas. And it was mostly about Tegeta and, and how Tegeta, the coal mine, was given this preferential contract to deal with ESCOM. Of course, they say Glencore was about to go under, and ESCOM was pressured into saving Glencore because Cyril was there. Basically, it's all so ugly because it appears to the casual observer that it is impossible to do business at a high level like that in South Africa without the grubby hands of politicians being involved at almost every level. And this, if anything else, whether it's it's Coco being the bad guy or Essa being the bad guy or Jacob Zuma being the bad guy or the Guptas themselves, it doesn't seem to matter to me because what this has revealed is just how fraudulent and corrupt the supposed ordinary business of coal mining. You'd think something as filthy as coal mining would attract um, people who were just interested in making a profit, but clearly it's all very, very much in, inter, in, intermingled with the ugly politics of this country. It made me quite depressed. Yeah, look, uh, de- depressed I- I- indeed, and I think you know you're right in saying that you know we've had a tainted, a tainted state now for any number of, of years. Um, and, you know, the, the tainting of the state really is not just related uh, to the Guptas. And I think what we've certainly found out over the course of the last, uh, you know, the last year and a half, even after the Guptas have left our shores, to be perfectly honest, uh, Gareth, is that, uh, you know, there are so many other nefarious actors who've been involved in the pillaging of the state mm-hmm. for the last decade or perhaps even more than that. And in many cases, they don't have anything to do with the Guptas, to be perfectly honest. The Guptas had their own role to play in this whole saga. Uh, But we've seen uh, all sorts of individuals take advantage of uh, the weakness of the state. And I think that's really what it's been. It's been an exceptionally weak and porous state in South Africa. Uh, It really has been a state in which uh, those in positions of power have been able to leverage those positions in order to feather their own nest. Right. And frankly, we've seen, uh, you know, many of the corruption issues really uh, happen, you know, under the nose of the most senior politicians within South Africa with absolute impunity. Well, not just under uh, their nose, sometimes, sometimes with their very direct permission. Well, you know, when you, you know, if you don't say anything about, you know, corruption and you don't speak out about corruption and you perhaps even know that there are issues taking place, you know, in a sense, you're also complicit to mm. what we've seen. And I do think that, you know, just about every single politician in South Africa who's been in some level of government uh, and authority, certainly from the state's point of view for the last decade, bears some responsibility here. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a dirty, sordid story of effectively the raping and pillaging of taxpayers' money within this country over the last decade. You know, and, of course, we are now, we are now seeing the, the fruits of that with a lack of, a lack of resources to really yeah. use in returning this country to some semblance of growth going forward. You know, Pumi and I often, every week, and I'm not putting words in your mouth, Pums, but I, I'm, I'm sick of people using the scapegoat of, of Zuma and the Guptas to, uh, to kind of cleanse their own 
very tainted spirits because we see this happening over and over again. Of course, Jacob Zuma is doing nothing at the moment to uh, to ease uh, any kind of lightening of the of the ugly picture that we all have in our heads of of the sort of person that he is. And by having tea with this one and tea with that one, and by thumbing his nose at the constitutional court and the commission, he's doing himself no favors. But Pumi. It, it strikes me as strange that someone like Brian Mulefe, who I saw in front of the commission, he doesn't seem to be contrite about any of the skullduggery that he's very pointedly been involved in. And remember, Brian Mulefe was not just involved at ESCOM. He's been involved in a bunch of things, and he's been involved at very deep levels. And he seems to be the man calling the shots in a lot of these situations, or at very least to have been the agent of other people who were calling the shots without questioning a damn thing. Now, He's sitting there in front of Judge Zondo, and he seems relaxed, and he seems confident, and he seems happy with himself, as if he's made some sort of contribution to the country. There's just the height of... But why would he not? The height of a rhino on this guy. But but because there is no consequence, right? Which, Which is, for me, you know, unfortunately, also is about other state organs, right? It's not... So it's not just about the politicians it is also about our policing it is also about our taxation i think you know we we saw yesterday uh with hamilton as everybody and i don't know if you any of you saw that judgment but when i read parts of that judgment the judge was very spicy about one of the various things on his findings right but sars sars pounced on on this guy they were just like hey you're like posting all of these buying 10 Lamborghinis overnight and all of that kind of stuff. So SARS comes after him because they're going, let's just see your tax returns for the past uh, couple of years. And, and so they were able to bring him to some kind of accountability. But there are other people that need to be brought to accountability. There are people in that supply chain in, in, at the NHLS who are the people that approved these payments, who are the people that signed off on these payments, who are the people that sent out the, you know, the notifications. Those people must also be brought to book. But nobody does that, right? So nobody does that. There's no like policing, no NPA, no arrests, no. So why would Brian Molefe? take any other stance than a stance that just says, yeah, so we did what we did. And anyway, don't think it's just this president. It's the other, you know, it's not Jacob Zuma. It's Cyril Ramaphosa was also there. The, you, you know what I'm saying? Because so what? No consequences. No consequences. You agree with that, Daniel? You think that it's uh, we're a country of no consequences? I think that there's a long way to go before our politicians really are properly accountable in South Africa. You know, Gareth, I mean, you know, we haven't had in South Africa a culture of accountability amongst senior politicians for decades. Ever. 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 Well, perhaps even for century, Pumi. I mean, think back to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I mean, Adrian Flock and, and Magnus Milan both went to their graves and Pia Vierbueta without ever having to account for themselves. You know, there, there, there are two issues. One is this lack of accountability that South Africans have lived with for decades in the new South Africa and the pre-94 era. Mm-hmm. And we've also got no tradition in South Africa where the voters themselves uh, turn out to vote out yeah. a corrupt administration. Mm-hmm. So you've got, you know, you've got a double trouble, a double whammy within South Africa on those two issues. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why you find yourself in the state that you're in in this country 
is that there's no accountability from the law in many instances and no accountability from the voters as well. <laughs> yeah. Except for the fact that unfortunately the poor voters are stuck with um, a devil they know, a devil they suspect, and two other parties that none of them want to touch with the barge pole. <laughs> That's the reality of it. <laughs> but, that, but that is why that is why Pumi always says every week that it's up to us and we have to take control of these things wherever we can. If it means being on the school governing body so that you can see that things go right for your kids' education, if it means uh, making sure that you pay attention to the opening of a local clinic and that you get involved there, if you can spend a bit of your time helping people grow vegetables somewhere. We've got to look to ourselves. These guys are not going to look after us. Look, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I don't think we must, go, we must give up necessarily on the, the political process and <laughs> opposition. It's not, I agree with you that the opposition parties haven't covered themselves in glory mm. uh, in South Africa in recent years. Uh, and, you know, you, often you saddled with the government simply because your opposition is even weaker or looks even uh, weaker than the government itself. And I think to some degree, you know, that has existed in South Africa. Uh, but the process, I think, is an open process in terms of opposition versus government in this country. It's not as though opposition is suppressed in South Africa as it is, of course, in other parts of the world. And really, I mean, this should be a time when uh, opposition parties, and I speak broadly about opposition parties, you know, see this as a, as a tremendous opportunity. It's manna from heaven yeah. for our opposition parties to really take advantage of all of these, uh, the wrongdoings of the governing party. And yet they do seem largely to be able to shoot themselves in the foot on a weekly basis and let the ANC off the hook. You see this Jesus. in other parts of the world as well. It's not just a South African phenomenon where opposition... But in the past two together. weeks, in the past two weeks, we have seen two leaders of the op of the, the predominant opposition parties take sides in ANC factional battles, right? So Julius Malema <laughs> aligns himself with Jacob Zuma mm -hmm. for, for whatever reason. I, I, I still, it, my mind boggles. And then on, on Sunday, and I, I, a couple of days ago, I saw an article by Tony Leon. On Sunday, we wake up to the biggest newspaper in the country, the biggest weekly newspaper in the country, with a bold headline that says, John Stiernazen, the leader of the opposition, is willing to go against uh, the, the Zuma faction to support Cyril Ramaphosa. And I'm going, what the hell? What the hell is going but is on? But I don't think that that's and so strange. That's just Leon politicians being, that's just politicians. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Poms. That's politicians being politicians. I wouldn't be surprised if behind closed doors, both Cyril and John Stiernazen are, are exploring are exploring avenues for creating some kind of of moderate uh, wing of 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 you know the ANC merged with the the DA because to, together they'd be a hell of a lot stronger than apart. And uh, everybody imagine voting for the DA then because well, you're voting against the ANC, and then the DA comes out to say, "Hey, hey, by the way, that's right. This ANC that's president right. is the great guy." Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. But, but look, there are no easy answers here, right? I, I do want to ask you, Daniel, because you're, a lot of what you do is, is to do with the economy. And we had the budget speech. Uh, it feels like ages ago, but it was just a week ago. And we've, we've had many discussions subsequent to that already about what kind of work needs to be done on the economy. What are your findings? What do you tell international investors? What do you tell big companies? 
And, and what should we all be thinking about when it comes to the local economy and, and where there are opportunities and where you should stay the hell away? Yeah, look, Eric, I mean, from a, from a South African point of view, um, the first thing, other than the politics, put politics aside for the moment, the reality, the reality really is in this country, you have 60 million South Africans who require goods and services. Now, yes, they're cash-strapped for sure. They're looking for value. But there is a ready market domestically in South Africa of 60 million. There's a ready market on our borders of another 100, 200 million people to the north of us, just in terms of the SADC region itself. Mm -hmm. And there's a broader Africa out there as well. So when you're dealing with sort of the broader economic issues facing South Africa, we shouldn't just look at South Africa in isolation. There's a tremendous market of people who need to buy and use stuff, to put it to put it simply. Mm. And clearly what we should be doing in South Africa is servicing that market. We should be, and I've said it before, and you can simplify it to the point is we should simply be making stuff that other people want to buy. Okay. That's what we should be doing. Right. Um, and, and, and we haven't. We haven't. Uh, our manufacturing sector in South Africa has been in decline for the last decade. Uh, what we call a capacity utilization in our factories, the usage of our equipment, has underperformed. We've got spare capacity in this country, and that's because of the second plank here, which is a lack of general confidence in the broader regulatory, political, state transparency environment that tends to put off domestic investors from spending domestically. So you've got a great market on the one hand, and you've got a weak state, you've got cadre deployment, you've got policy uncertainty, really at on the other side it's almost like a, a tug of war between these two big factors and you've got to try and uh, uh, try and find a middle ground there and you know it's it's a big it's a big puzzle uh, i think that just to be you know positive you know for a, for a, for a moment i think there's a realization in south africa and that's what covid has done to us that the rubber has hit the road in terms of the ability of the state to keep on paying and paying and paying, right. to keep on increasing the size of the bureaucracy, to keep on wasting money on state-owned enterprises that don't perform or only perform for a connected elite. That has hit the road. And COVID has done us some sort of favor, and that's not a nice thing to say, but it has done us a favor in our applying our minds to what hopefully will be some sort of turnaround. But unless the state itself is transparent and accountable, I can talk, you know, the hind legs of a donkey to use yeah. an old corny cliche. Yeah. Uh, that accountability is at the heart of creating a better investment environment and the regulatory regime has to go with that. So investors are investors want to invest. The private sector wants to get more involved. They're tired of putting money into offshore investments where they haven't had fantastic returns either, I might say. Right. But they need confidence-building uh, 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 aspects from government. And those have been messy uh, and ongoing issues of corruption. Nothing to do with Gupta. The corruption just of the last year on the yeah. COVID, the relief monies, for example, right. that tends to undermine confidence so, on a daily basis. Interesting point. And Pums, I'd like your comments on this too. Kasatu said that the 2021 budget failed to address the root cause of South Africa's fiscal crisis. Interesting. They, Kasatu of all people, are pointing this out. The loss of $150 billion a year in revenue due to corruption and wasteful expenditure. Of course, Kasatu have a, a, a particular reason for doing this. Their strategy is to distract from the fact that they represent so many government workers 
who have been receiving increases every year. And Kasatu know that there should be, even if there aren't, uh, government heads on the chopping block in terms of the public wage bill. But they are pointing out something really important here. $150 billion a year in revenue is lost due to corruption and wasteful expenditure. No real surprise, but surprising that Kasatu are bringing it up. Or do you think it's already clear why they're doing that? Of course it's clear why they're doing it. That wasteful expenditure, if you broke it down, where is the expenditure being wasted? A lot of it is in, in having lots a huge, huge public sector wage bill that that can't be that can't Justified. be rationalized. And they refuse for it to be rationalized, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But suspect there. Uh, do you want to add anything to that, Daniel? How do you feel about the unions at the moment? Are they are they doing anything to help or everything to make it worse? Yeah, I mean, the, the problem for the unions is if, you know, the, the, the unions are not likely to vote for their own salary adjustments downwards. They're not likely to vote for a, a reduction in benefits. Sure. Um, but they are critical of government now at this very late stage when, of course, they have, uh, you know, enjoyed the fruits of that perhaps for the last decade or so. So, I mean, unions really have to to be fair when it comes to judging government, and frankly, they haven't. Uh, But again, you know, I think that there is now, uh, you know, part of the problem, you know, really, Gareth, is that there's no ideological consistency within the governing ANC. There's also very ideological consistency, frankly, amongst the unions and amongst other sort of related parties in how to um, fine-tune governance within the country. Um, the ANC is all over the place on ideology. There are elements of the socialists, quasi-socialist, capitalist, statist, populists, you name it, that all lumped together really uh, still very much on, on the liberation bandwagon. Um, and you know, until such a time as the governing party itself, with its trade union partners, really can perfect uh, some sort of clear ideology, uh, you're going to see this kind of messiness in terms of policy application. Uh, on the one hand, populism is practiced to maintain dependency in South Africa. Uh, and you see that all the time. And increasing the size of the bureaucracy in South Africa for the last 10 years has made a lot of individuals, not just wealthier, but it's made a lot of individuals reliant upon the largesse of the state. And you wonder why the DA really can't make a breakthrough in South Africa because so many people are fearful that those benefits would be uh, removed from them. Well, if there was a VA administration, we, to be perfectly honest, and we do hear of we do hear of underhanded tactics in certain rural areas where old people are told, you know, you won't get your pension or your social welfare check if you vote any way other than this. And we know that that happens. I mean, we've all got friends and family who live in those places who know that those are, those are very real concerns. But uh, the DA has their own battle, and we'll talk about them in a second. I just want to finish off with this because. Uh, when we talk about uh, parastatals and unions and government spending. Uh, Parliament's finance watchdog is going to investigate, listen to this, they're not going to investigate the fact that ESCOM might be working better, but they're going to investigate that the CEO, the new CEO, their white CEO, Andre Dereta, is purging black suppliers. You know, it's more concerning to them that black suppliers, who may have been doing a terrible job and not necessarily delivering services, we don't know that for a fact, but it could be true, considering ESCOM's track record, it's possible that all their suppliers are crap. But they're going to be purging these black suppliers, and it's interesting that the Standing Committee in Public Accounts, SCOPA, is not worried 
that ESCOM are starting to get their books in order, that they're starting to claim money back from municipalities, that they're starting to provide more sustainable and, and reliable electricity, even if it is at a higher price. Instead, they're worried that some black suppliers are losing out. This is a, this is a strange priority to have, don't you think? Uh, well, <laughs> look, yeah, I think this, that's a diversionary tactic, clearly, from many of the other issues that are currently occurring on the state capture front. And you're starting to see the sort of fight back. We've seen a fight back uh, amongst the sort of more populist radical economic transformation quarters on a variety of issues. I think this simply goes to that as well. But I mean, in all fairness, Gareth, I mean, you are seeing uh, some major changes you know, at ESCOM. Uh, we have seen, uh, you know, the broader ESCOM look at a very different relationship across the board uh, with independent power producers, bringing them into the equation. Uh, I, I simply think it's a it's an RET brigade fight back on that issue. Uh, and I think, you know, again, within the ANC, there are elements who want to see that uh, fight back expanded within the ANC. There are elements who understand that that is what it is, an RET diversionary tactic. And those differences within the so, ANC are precisely the factions that both the EFF and the DA want to try and, and, and pry open. And Pumi, we know that when they talk about black suppliers, they're not talking about some small-scale guy who really needs an opportunity. We're talking about the, collect the connected political elite. We're talking about cadres who are on the take and who are upset that they're no longer on the take. I mean, if, you know, if it was a small black business... Um, that could finally get the break that it deserved, we would all be in favor of that, right? You, you know, Daniel alluded to the fact that what we're seeing is we're seeing a lack of political unity in terms of the ideas and the ideology. You know, the, the party does call itself, the governing party does call itself a broader church. Which I say, you know, that, that's their way of saying we've got room for everybody on the pews. But the problem with that is that you then find yourself in, in this limbo in every direction where you kind of, they, they have to, on the one side, they have to appease all of the, the individuals that are what we now call the RET, and they have to appease business on the other hand, they have to appease the voters and the populism that they, that they, they choose to stand on, the hill they choose to die on is one where the most popular concepts are the ones that they then use as as the the thing that they're going to spend all of their energy and time on because that's what the people want to hear about so people don't want to hear that there's a purging of black suppliers no matter who those black suppliers are whether they're small or big or whatever because that then plays into an ideology that says there is no redistribution of wealth in South Africa because here are these few black suppliers that were making it in the, yeah. and now they are being thrown out right. in favor of whom? In favor of the old white regime. White regime is what they say. And unfortunately, that, populist politics... And that narrative sticks. That narrative sticks. People like that narrative. I just want to clear up for anybody who's frustrated because I often will listen to 
and and this is no uh, this is no uh, criticism of the two of you, but I'll listen to people who are analyzing a situation. They'll talk about things like RET. We're talking radical economic transformation when we say that. They don't often explain the acronyms, and you two were both talking about it like uh, university professors. There, some of us are going, "Huh? What's well, RET?" Uh, no, it's fine. It's fine. I'm sure I mean the full name, Gareth. No but I want to just come in on, on this point, which, which is an which is an important point. Yes, I think the ANC has succeeded in uh, delivering to all of these constituent elements uh, and keeping them within the fold. And I think that's part of the ANC's ongoing electoral success. What we spent the budget last week, and it is an important point to make, is that indeed it does seem as though Mr. Mbawani has taken the view that the state cannot simply be the piggy bank for absolutely everyone. Um, and on the basis of that, those, that budget that we saw last, last week is predicated upon a smaller state expenditure bill and in the very serious and direct issue of salary adjustments for civil servants. That is a direct, a direct uh, a threat, in a sense, to the power of the unions within the ANC. If he can get that right, the budget figures look better. If he can't get that right, we go into a period in two or three years' time where that uh, debt-to-GDP ratio for South Africa simply continues on an upward trajectory rather on a downwards trajectory. So there was an important, I think, admission from the state that the status quo simply cannot continue. The question is, will the ANC's constituent elements buy in to what is a very serious position now in terms of our debt position and the cost of our debt, particularly in South Africa, or will they take a different view, which means some sort of balkanization or real fragmentation from the ANC mothership? And I think that is going to play itself out in South Africa over the next few months into the next year or two. These pressures on the ANC are now very, very real. The coffers are largely empty. There's only so much you can milk the middle classes in South Africa, or even the poor in South Africa, through indirect taxes. And I think the rubber has hit the road on that. All right. So, and this is the, the sorry, crevice that the, the opposition parties should really be prying into, rather than aligning themselves with either faction. Yeah. I think they should realize that the, the, the party, I think the ANC is mortally wounded. Really it is. And the, the time is now to take advantage well, of that and deliver, d- deliver policies that can make a difference to many South Africans instead of just kind of going. And I think, unfortunately, our opposition parties have re- have resigned themselves to the fact that the ANC wins and always wins with this large majority. Well, let's, they, uh, let's, and so they're just aligning themselves. Let's talk about the, the opposition the, parties. The uh, let's do a little whip round of the opposition parties because I actually, I think that there have been opportunities lost during this uh, pandemic. And, and I've got to say that John Steenhuisen has succeeded at least in one or two respects. First of all, by stopping Helen Ziller from tweeting all the time about nonsense, because she's certainly, um, you know, been relegated to, uh, to to being, you know, slightly an outsider pissing in, if you don't mind the tent analogy, rather than a, than an insider pissing out. Um, so he's he's managed to um, also get the the DA's messaging more or less in terms of of, of everybody being on board more or less cogent which it wasn't for the longest time. And we all know that the, the DA was speaking with forked tongue on a number of different things. So I think he deserves a little bit of credit there. He certainly seems to be um, in the mold of a, and I don't want to in, insult 
either Tony Blair or him, but he seems to be doing things in, in more or less the mold of a, of a new Labour Tony Blair there. And I think it's largely working for them. They've also been very outspoken about the pandemic. And I think they've won over a few people by saying to government, you know, here it is. And they've taken them to court in a number of, of cases as well and said, you know, we'll be party to bringing you to heel on things that just don't make sense. The EFF, um, while they've distracted us with shampoo and uh, Brockenfell High School, have been shown to have been probably on the back foot more than anything else during this pandemic. And the IFP have just totally disappeared from the political scenario. I can't help thinking it's because uh, Mango Sutubutelezi is now so old that he really can't be at the helm there anymore. Do you think that's a fair appraisal? Or do you think that I've left out some stuff? Uh, well, I think from the DA's perspective, um, I would certainly agree that in the first six to nine months of the pandemic, so for most of last year, uh, Mr. Steenhuizen, before he was formally elected, was very effective at putting across a message of, of being an alternative, an alternative leader. And he used social media very effectively to address the nation on a number of, of occasions looking very presidential. Not quite sure why that hasn't continued because that really is the way to go in South Africa, to use social media very effectively. Many South Africans don't watch parliamentary debates. They don't concentrate, they tend to switch off when it comes to the formalized political environment. But putting yourself forward as an alternative and using social media to create a buzz about a, an address on a, on a monthly basis. I mean, every time, that uh, 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 President Ramaphosa speaks to the nation immediately afterwards. Mr. Stienhuizen should be on a webcast giving his alternative uh, address to the nation every time. And, and it, it was done. If, he, if he is, if he is, we don't know about it. So it, 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 yeah. he, he does do it, um, but it's not effectively communicated even through the social media platforms. Right. So I think they did well last year. But I, the problem is, Gareth, the proof is in the pudding. And the pudding is amongst the electorate and the voters. Yeah. And the DA hasn't specifically been able to increase its voter share that substantially in the recent by-elections that were held. Ninety odd of them held in uh, November, December of last year. It was almost a mini-election. And in fact, the DA battled to retain its voter share. So something is not quite right in the messaging of the of the party. And this confusion about uh, looking towards some sort of uh, cooperative agreement, and it's not about a coalition here. In all fairness to Mr. Steenhuizen, he didn't mention the C word. He, you know, <laughs> broadly speaking, looked at a cooperative alliance with elements within the ANC. Nothing new in that. I think the press tended to uh, blow that out of proportion and all the rest of us perhaps as well. Um, yeah, it, but it's confusion. It, it, it yeah. messes up the, the, the distinct message of the DA, and it doesn't really help the DA in identifying a niche for itself. So there are issues with that. Uh, on the issue of the uh, EFF, uh, yes, I mean, the sort of the more authoritarian approach of managing COVID-19, the COVID, uh, the command council, for example, takes away some of the command council uh, ideology from the EFF, uh, the rules and regulations, the centralization of power that the ANC has seen in the last year or so, takes away the luster from the EFF. Uh, and they haven't been able really to make a mark other than some of the social campaigns that you've correctly outlined. So both the opposition parties have been stunted in their ability to really take on the ANC over this period. And of course, Gareth, the point to remember here 
is that no matter what we say about the ANC, if there is, and it's a big if, if there is an efficient vaccine rollout program in the next six to nine months, the person who will get the credit for that will be President Ramaphosa. Yeah. His redemption, in effect, in effect, is a good vaccine rollout program. If it runs into a snail pace mm. and, you know, our vaccines expire before they are due to be administered, then I think, and there's corruption, then I think he could be in trouble. So um, he's a bit like a Teflon president, well, we our have, president. But we have already oh, had those. I, I do want to caution you that we've already had those two, um, what would we call them, uh, pitfalls. Uh, they've already occurred in the, before the vaccine had arrived and shortly after the AstraZeneca one did. Uh, it wasn't an enthusiastic uh, rallying no. cry for, for Cyril Ramaphosa. He's going to have to do much better than this. No, look, there's a second, there's a second chance. There's a second chance here that he has. And that second chance, can, of course, President always effectively has a second chance, especially on an issue like this, which is a critical issue for South Africa. And he has the chance to uh, redeem himself from some of the broader macro issues of critique that he I mentioned. get the feeling. So yeah, Pumi, Pumi's laughing. Pumi's laughing because she doesn't necessarily agree. <laughs> Listen here, Cyril Ramaphosa has had more second chances than a cat has lives. So uh, <laughs> I don't know about that guy. Yeah. But I, I do want to just picking up on, on what Daniel's talking about with the opposition parties. Mm. Um, and yeah, I have to revert to type being a communications person. Mm. That the. The, the opposition parties fall flat when it comes to what they are communicating, not so much how often or yes. when or where they are communicating. I don't think anybody can tell you um, with, with the relative confidence what it is that the DA actually stands for what the DA stands for, what are their, their top three priorities, what are the three things that, that they will deliver if ever, you know, in the ever unlikely event that John Stianason gets voted in to be the president. What are the three things that they will do for South Africans? No one can tell you what that is. Neither can anybody tell you about the EFF. And I think, unfortunately, why the EFF has plateaued is because they've, they've morphed into a cult of Julius Malema. So the EFF is going to be like UDM. 20 years from now, they will still have their CIC as Julius Malema, and there's no succession plan in place, which is what happened to the IFP. There was no succession plan in place. So with Mangosutu aging as he has, nobody can see who the leader of that party is going to be. Who's, who's the next person that's going to take the party forward, and what does the party stand for? Yeah. You know, that's, that's unfortunately where... All, all the opposition parties are stuck in that space where nobody knows what they stand for or what they can do or what they will do if they are ever voted into power, other than the fact that they have a lot to say against the ANC. They have none of their own stuff to say. It's just against the ANC. It's against Jacob Zuma. It's against corruption. Yeah. But, but, I, mean, what, what is, I mean, what does the ANC stand for? I mean, you could leverage, you know, the, the same argument really absolutely. as I, 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 what, what, what are its top three priorities? And we could, you know, if you're cynical, you'll say the top one of the top three priorities is is serving the interests of the connected elites within the ANC. But there are top three. What are the top three? Uh, what are the top three what? priorities? The problem for the DA is that one of its top priorities would be a smaller state. And a smaller state means less dependency on the state for individuals within South Africa. Yeah. And that's a threat 
to many voters out there. It really is. And that's a real issue that the DA has to overcome. Yeah. And this is this is exactly, you know, when you say what are, what are the priorities for the ANC, what the ANC in the past has been able to do very well is they've been able to leverage the we are the party of liberation we are a party that can deliver a better life for all and 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 then what they did for two elections after that is they kept hammering on on the fact that they had a good story to tell. They have a good story to tell. We have got this, this is what we've built, these are the number of houses, this, and, and that is what has carried them. Where they are weak today is they actually have no salient message because they are busy with infighting. So they're not working together to be out there selling the party. They are busy with infighting, and that's why it's an advantage to, the, to any opposition party. A new party could take advantage of that because they are not they, their eyes off the ball. Yeah, let me, let me just, I think in relation to what you're saying, I think what we will see in South Africa is a fragmentation of the South African voters' vote, a fragmentation. And I agree with you entirely. There is room in the spectrum for new political entrants, given that the existing ones are not fulfilling. Oh, you just ideally. said, sorry, you just said the word spectrum and Stella and Benny Abrams just had an apoplexy. <laughs> <laughs> but I always like the word, always like that word spectrum. Um, there, there, is, there is room for new political players. The problem is that we are likely to see a fragmentation of the opposition vote as well. There may be an increasing fragmentation of the ANC vote, but it's going to go to a variety of different sources in the opposition. So we are we going to see special interest groups. We're going to see local local interest groups gain traction in local government elections, and we're going to see more complex coalitions emerge, particularly at local government level, in the next nine months or so. Now, nothing wrong with that. I like coalitions, bring people together. It's it's it's, it's a check and balance uh, as well within the process. But I do think that's where South African politics is going. And perhaps that's a positive when you look at this. One political party is not going to have a monopoly of taking votes away from the ANC. It yeah. may be a number of different parties. I think that we're going to be surprised in the next couple of years. There is a seismic shift coming in the political arena of South Africa. And 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 I think it's it's not going to look the way a lot of people think that it's going to well, look. Well, what do you think it's going to look like? That's an interesting proposition. I, I think that the, there is going to be a groundswell of a new political force, new ideology, mm. because they are, you know, with 26 years in, which is where the ANC is, which is also around the time, 20 to 30 years is around the time when liberation movements around the world Re lose reach their, their support. Yeah, they, they overripe. Mm. They, they, they're at that point. And this is, the, this is where the opportunity and Daniel, you'll bear me out on this. There is there's a huge move to a more digitalized experience and a more connected way of speaking to the electorate, which none of the parties are currently taking um, taking advantage of. And I think that it's we're going to see it happen. We're going to see it rise in the next couple of years. We've got 36 months to go before the next general election. A lot can happen in 36 months. I, mean, actually, I, I, I do agree with you, and I think the digitized aspect uh, of campaigning uh, and message uh, presentation is going to be critical. And it's interesting because if you look at the ANC today, its core support base really is not coming out of uh, the connected urban areas. Its core support base today is, is more rurally based. Uh, and you've seen the ANC already struggle when it comes to retaining their majorities in the big urban metros in South Africa. 
So it's that rural poorer voter who is still largely in favor of the ANC, but that urban voter certainly, I think, will be looking for fresh alternatives. The issue still goes back to whether there'll be a one, whether there's a single political party who can really tap into those disaffected but, but former guys, ANC what, what, what is, what is uh, It's not former yeah, ANC and, and voters and that they have to get. Those voters that yeah, don't bother to turn out to that, vote. There's this a, huge voting number exactly. All right. who have become alienated or lazy or disinterested in the political system or just generally irritated with everything. They stay at home. Now, uh, Mr. Mashaba's party now clearly is trying to target, <laughs> trying to target the, you know, nine or 10 million South Africans who just don't bother going to the polls. Mm. If you can get that messaging right, then you can really have a launch pad for but, something but bigger. What is what is the messaging that is going to resonate? Because we always talk about these disaffected people who've given up on the political process, but nobody seems to be able to to, to find, you know, like Donald Trump did. I mean, we I didn't want to bring him up uh, because he hasn't been in the <laughs> burning platform for a while, but. But Donald Trump didn't appeal him. to traditional Republicans. Um, he didn't appeal to, to, to angry Democrats who, who were sick of the Democratic Party. Instead, he built his own new, uh, what would you call it, consensus of, of, of disaffected, grumbling, disenfranchised, excluded uh, middle Americans. Now, we have we, GOP. we have that same con, const, uh, constituency in South Africa, and those people are not being appealed to. So who's going to do it, and what is the messaging that we need so, to employ? You know what it's like, Gareth, it's, to bring us back to the very beginning of this show. It's like that George Foreman grill, right? It's it's about finding that that <laughs> that that basic need yeah. that appeals to most South Africans, right. and. And answering that, it's like it's like coming up with an Arnold Palmer. Mm. You've just got to thirst, quench the thirst of the South African voter. <laughs> That's it. It's well, the same thing. Yeah, from 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 your mouth to God's ears. We're almost out of time. Uh, Daniel, is there any uh, any stuff internationally that you're paying very close attention to at the moment? And Pumi, are there any international stories that have caught your eye? Uh, uh, Gareth, yeah. Look, I think you know, from an international perspective, we are we, we are always a little behind the curve in South Africa. We're watching the big vaccine rollout programs in other parts of the world, mm -hmm. um, and I think in some cases, perhaps quite enviously, where it's working. There are areas where it hasn't worked particularly efficiently, um, but we are going to be under pressure in South Africa politically as well if this vaccine rollout goes too slowly or is fraught with logistical issues. We'll see the rest of the world vaccinated. We'll see other African states vaccinated as well. And I think the pressure is therefore on just because there's a competitive edge to the world and even to our own continent. Uh, just, and that's just from the vaccination program. So we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't underestimate the psychological effect on South Africans watching other people get the jab and get the jab quite efficiently. Um, and the second issue, obviously, that I, I, I tend to watch is, is you know, the, global, the global recovery from COVID-19. Uh, can it benefit us? Yes, it can. If we had a, an efficient uh, uh, regulatory regime in South Africa, we could see many more manufacturing jobs return to South Africa as companies look to localize rather than globalize their productive capacity. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would hope that, you know, government really understands that because it's still a job creator. Mm. You can talk about the digital age. Yeah, but we need 
a large number of lower paid manufacturing jobs, almost still in the old economy in South Africa, at least as a bridge until we get uh, a new economy structured in this country. Uh, and I think there's some well, way to go there, but there's tremendous opportunity if you really embrace uh, the changes that are occurring in the world, yeah. partially as a result of COVID. I'd like to just give give credit to Tabiso on this because Tabiso sent this this question, and we'd love to hear our opinions on the connection between a lack of political will and the downturn in manufacturing, which you've just spoken about now, Daniel. Uh, Tabiso says, for instance, it makes no sense that we're not developing our own vaccines or cars for that matter. I mean, look at Mahindra, Kia, etc. We do have great pharmaceutical companies in this country on that note. And um, we probably don't have the research and development budgets that they do in, in big pharma overseas. But we've got substantial players in the market. And we do in, in many other sectors of our economy, of course. Government's not going to give them the upper hand because government sees them as evil, evil capitalist corporations that are trying to screw uh, the worker out of a, out of a job. So th the whole ideology is a bit messed up there. But do you agree, Pumi, like mm -hmm. manufacturing? Let's take that back. Produce things the world wants. That's in, in fact, that's what the whole world needs, more kind of production of things, as Daniel was saying earlier. There is no reason why we do not have a thriving uh, manufacturing of minibus taxis, like people movers. Inyati and Iveco and all of those people have come in. We buy more taxis. We have more taxis on the road than any other country in the world. Right. Why are we not manufacturing our own? Why are we not manufacturing our own? Textiles, we used to have an incredibly strong textile uh, industry down in the Cape that has all been shut simply because we, we've allowed um, we've allowed foreign uh, people, to, foreigners like China to be able to dump their, their, their Ooh, wares. Are here. we talking, are we talking protectionism industry. here? Is that what we're saying? <laughs> And the textile industry, Gareth, the textile industry all over the world has grown. And we had the capacity here. We could have manufactured those textiles much cheaper than anywhere else in the world. And we shut down that entire industry. So, I mean, it is political will. Unfortunately, our politicians are expedient with a lot of decisions that they make and, and don't have a lot of long-term thinking, kind of, of the push and pull. We talk about the that the budget is only going to work if Titomboweni and his compatriots can can make it work. Mm. But in order to make it work, they have to be willing to sacrifice some of the relationships that they have. They have to be willing to let go of their um, their Kosatu uh, affiliations. Mm. They have to be willing to let those things go for the long-term vision in order to deliver on what they need to deliver on. But there's no political will and no leadership. <laughs> no leadership in that party, unfortunately. Even though he gets second chances, Cyril Ramaphosa is a weak president. Hmm. Uh, do you have any comments on those uh, those, those quite damning uh, remarks from Pumi? <laughs> yeah. There's a great, there's a great Chinese company, as it happens, that manufactures television sets and white goods here in the Western Cape uh, called Hisense. Yes. A great factory. Those goods go out to, to us here and other parts of the African continent as well. Uh, it's one factory. We should have, you know, a massive industry like that within the within with, within our country. Uh, the consumer market across this continent is enormous. Populations are growing, and growth rates across many parts of Africa are going to resume a relatively favourable path 
once we get through COVID and probably quite 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 rapidly. So, you know, the potential is there within this country. So I've I, 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 I no doubt about that. I'm quite positive when it comes to that. But, you know, I do agree here. You know, your broader political environment, your broader accountability, transparency environment for government has to be 100%. You cannot operate in a milieu use another fine word gareth a milieu of uh of of confusion and protection of your own buddies you cannot operate within that environment and that will just stymie every aspect of growth so you know i think you know ramaphosa himself you know he's got the potential certainly to really leverage many of the non-anc groupings within south africa certainly the private sector who will give him every single chance more than the nine lives of a cat he will yeah. get from the private sector within I, I, South Africa. I must warn you, Pumi and I do not share your excitement and optimism with respect to optimism any any political any political capital that he has left. I think he has squandered so many opportunities along the way. Most of all, COVID. You know, there was a there was a rallying cry that the president could have put out at that point. He could have taken advantage of COVID to exact some pretty serious damage on his enemies within his party and without. And instead, yes. he, he sat there like a jelly baby. You know, you, you would... The, the issue, Go ahead, Daniel. The issue, of the, the issue of the president is one of the potential of the president. I agree with you absolutely that there has been vacillation and yeah. weakness over the last number of years that has partially also been uh, instrumental in the weak position of South Africa broadly. And may I just say also, and I'm going to be critical of the president as well, uh, when it comes to looking at the issues relating to ESCOM, the president himself has had 12, 13, 14 years yeah. to look at issues of energy security in South Africa and really hasn't been able to lead on that particular issue. So I'm the first to be able to also criticize him. But the reality is he's the president of South Africa. The reality is, certainly for me, is that there is still, and certainly within the private sector that I work in, a tremendous amount of goodwill towards him personally, and also a, a belief, you may say it's a false belief, but yeah. a belief that he stands for uh, uh, more business-friendly economic policy proposals going forward. It goes Someone back should to, send him the memo. It goes back to the same old story. Um, do you believe that, or do you, be, you know, or, or do you believe he's he's an ANC cadre just to, uh, uh, to 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 promote the friends and, and buddies? And you can take your you can take you can take your view you can take your view on that. My own Someone view, should send him the memo that says he's the president of this country. Someone should send him that memo. Maybe he's forgotten. Well, you know, you, you, you know, you know the makeup of the ANC just as well as I do. You know that he's been saddled with an unenviable task well, of dragging well, this. No one held a gun to his liberation head. movement. No, <laughs> no one. I'm sorry. No, no, no. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sympathetic anymore. There was a time where I was like, you know, go Cyril, and we, we, we need you more than we, we need these crooks. But I'm, I'm afraid he's, you know, he's, when he's Oliver wasted Tampo that. was the president of that party. When Oliver Tambo was the president of that party, he held that animal by the scruff of its neck from London, no less, all over the country, all over the world. He was able to hold that steady, that ship steady. When Nelson Mandela was the president of that country, he was able to hold the, the ship steady. He was able to hold the ship steady. When when Ta, when Tabo was the president of that party, he was able, good or bad, he was able to wrangle that 
animal, the way that he wanted to wrangle that animal. And for all intents and purposes, if we listen to what the state commission is telling us, Jacob Zuma, when he was the president was of, that, of that party, was able to wield that party in the way that he wanted to wield the party. What is wrong with Cyril Ramaphosa that he cannot do the same for his party? He's the leader of the party, he's the leader of this country, and he is unable to wrangle the animal and make it heal to what he needs it to do. Thank I'm you sorry. Very much. Yeah, you, you, you're not going to find a sympathetic audience here, I'm afraid. I don't, I don't disagree. I don't disagree with both of you on this issue. All I'm saying is that the, I, I don't. All I'm saying is that the real politic of South Africa is that the ANC remains in power with a very healthy majority, and it doesn't look as though its electoral base is moving away from it in any great number yet. To your point, for me, because it may well do so, but it doesn't look like that yet. Mm. So we can we can criticize the president all we want to, and we can find fault and absolutely, and I agree with both of you on But the reality for me is that you're going to have to work with an ANC for some time to come within this country. You're going to have to, whether you like it or not. And you don't have to get the ANC electorate to vote away from the ANC. There are many, there are there what I think the last count stats say there's something like 25 million South Africans of voting age. The ANC won an outright majority with 11 million votes. Yeah, and we've, so, spoke, and we've spoken and we've spoken about those voters who don't vote for the who don't vote at all and their potential uh, to turn out for different political parties. And I agree that adds a fluidity to our political system that we haven't had recently. But as yet, it hasn't been translated into reality. I mean, we are talking really, you know, in, 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 in theory, so to speak. Now, if you have a change in August, September, when we have local government elections, you have this fragmentation of that ANC vote even further. Then I think you usher in a new year of South Africa with a competitive political system. Right. And I'm the first to be a proponent of a real competitive political system. The ANC will only listen to reason if it fears being turfed out of office. That's the only issue that really is going to get the ANC on its toes. And I think it will fragment when it is under that pressure as well. Their time is up. I think they are already on notice. <laughs> All right, Pumi, Daniel, thank you so, so very much, both of you. This is, um, there's been some nice discussion, some nice debate. I, I appreciate both of your points of view. It's always good to have uh, interested and interesting people handling the affairs of state and the affairs Guys, that all of us are most interested in. We yes, didn't even talk about Sarkozy and if he's going to yeah, prison. But we'll, anyway, we'll, we'll that's, get, a, we'll that's get a, to another, another topic save for it, another Save point. it for next week. And Pumi, we still have to talk about crazy Helen Ziller's uh, conspiracy theory about the, the microchips in her brain. We'll get to that next week too. She, Promise. she might not be on Twitter, but she's active on that Facebook. Ooh. Oh, is that, is that where it's gone? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, bye-bye. Thank you, everybody. Have a happy day. This is CliffCentral.com, and thank you for being part of the show this morning. We will see you tomorrow morning, bright and early at the same time. That's 6 a.m. Stick around. CliffCentral.com.